please join me as I pray? Our Father, we pause and recognize you. Say, hallowed be your name. You are holy and good, clothed in radiant glory. All of your perfections are so stunning that as they are held together in their fullness, they burst forth in light and in brilliance that is unapproachable and that is stunning. That's who you are. And so as we come to a moment like this to listen for your voice, to handle your word, we ask that you would have mercy on us, that you would speak clearly, that you would help each of us, each man and woman in the room, to have hearts that are prepared to receive and to hear from you. And I pray that in these moments you would be showing us what it means that we need qualified representation in your presence. We need someone who has a hand on us and a hand on your glorious presence so that we can flourish in the world. Would you reveal our need? Show us the the freedom and the beauty that's found in finding that need satisfied. We look forward to what you have for us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a long history of people knowing they need a priest. Like human history, globally, culturally, it has actually been a kind of a standard accepted reality when you drop down into various cultures and in various times and places that it has been a natural human inclination that we need someone to represent us to God from very elaborate and well-developed priesthoods that have been present in places like the Old Testament, that were also present in Mesopotamia and Egypt, and, but then also in small villages that don't have well-developed kind of systems, but you, you drop down into these cultural moments and you recognize people globally and historically have recognized we need some sort of representation to help us make sense of and lay hold of the power of something far bigger than us. And in a modern technological era, um, it may be that people have fooled themselves in the, in the majority of life. They've convinced ourselves that we can manage with our technology. Maybe we don't need any more priests than, hey, Siri. You know, okay, I, I can make sense of the wild world and I can, I've got an expanded knowledge and capacity. I can just ask a question. And, but it's interesting that in the pointed moments of life where our, the farce of our control is stripped away, people real quickly start to reach out for, who's my representation? Call for the chaplain. When all of a sudden the, the suffering or the struggle or the chaos sets in, people, no matter how much they have expressed that they don't need representation, that we are a people that historically, globally, and even still today know that we need a priesthood. We need somebody to represent us to something bigger than ourselves. And it's, it's a text like the one that we have before us today that I think exposes why that's the case. Why has that been a part of the human experience throughout time and in every culture. Why is that the case? And I think Hebrews 5 
and the following chapters are going to help us start to explore why do we need representation before God? And who is it that's qualified to represent us? A full third of this sermonic letter, this letter or sermon that we're studying, this book of Hebrews, a full third of it is going to be exploring the idea of priesthood. And we start in earnest in chapter five, and this chapter is gonna help us understand why do human beings know that they need representation and who is it that's qualified to represent them? Just to feel the flow of the, the ideas that we've been experiencing so that we can kind of find the context. Just follow with me once again where we've been in Hebrews. You'll remember Hebrews chapter one, we heard that Jesus is better than anything flashy and powerful in the world. He's seated even above the angels that are beneath him. He's glorious above all. Chapter two, we are called therefore to consider him. If Jesus, the one who walked the earth as this homeless rabbi carpenter, is seated even above the angels, then we better consider him, think about him. And chapter three says, and let's do it today in community. Don't put it off, it's not for tomorrow. Today we ought to do this because chapter four, when we together as a community daily set our minds on the one who is seated above all, he will deliver rest to our souls. Chapter five, here's how. You follow? He's high and exalted, set your mind on him, do it today in community, he will deliver rest. And the reason that he's able to do that is he's qualified to be the priest that all of humanity and every culture throughout all of time has been straining after and knowing that they need. And chapter five is gonna express to us, it's gonna show us just how that works. Two simple movements that I want us to explore in chapter five. The first is this, why do we need representation? The second movement, what are the qualifications? What needs to be in place for someone to be able to represent us appropriately? Okay, we need, we need qualified representation. I think this shows up first in the text and the fact that we're gonna see that this is God's idea. It's not just humanity and all of these cultures and times that are ch it's trying to satisfy our guilty conscience. But in fact, God has designed us and said, I'm gonna create a system where you actually desperately are in need of someone to represent you and it's my idea, not your idea. I just want us to see that right out of the gates that this is God's idea. In the Old Covenant in verses one and verse one and four of our text, we'll see that this is something that God came up with. Look at it with me. It says, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So this word chosen gets explored a little bit further in verse four when it says, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So as this author begins to explore the idea of the priesthood. He starts by establishing it firmly in the minds of his readers that this is something that God came up with, that he was gonna set up who was selected and why, that he chose someone that was going to be able to make sacrifices for sins, it says, and he did so in the line of Aaron. So just as we're starting, we're recognizing that in the old covenant, there was a category that was set up by God and God said, listen, humanity, you may not be fully aware of this yet, but you need someone to represent you. 
And then in the new covenant, he fulfills it. And I just want you to see that in verses 5 and 6 and 10, the same thing is still in place, that Jesus is selected by God to fulfill this. This is still God's idea, both in the way that it was established and the way that it was fulfilled. It says in verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself. It wasn't Jesus' idea to be made a high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then again in verse 10, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now let me just, as an aside real quickly, you just heard the the name Melchizedek twice. Um, I'm not going to explain that today. Uh... Because I think, in fact, in verse 11, the next verse that we're in, in our, and it, it, he's going to say, the author's going to say, you're not ready for Melchizedek yet. And so I'm just going to take my cues from the author of Hebrews, because in two chapters, he's going to spend a whole chapter delving into why Jesus is in the order of Melchizedek, not the order of Aaron. For our purposes today, here's what we need to hear. God established a priesthood in the old covenant. Jesus fulfilled that priesthood in the new covenant, And both were completely God's idea. He was expressing to humanity, you need something that you might even not yet know you need. You need representation. This is the context that gives shape to the passage we're studying today. God's saying, this is my idea and you need it. The question that I want us to explore a little bit is why? Have you ever considered this? Why, according to the scriptures, was it so necessary for there to be this elaborate priesthood that's offering sacrifices regularly, and then once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest is going in and making a particular sacrifice? Why was that so crucial in the Old Covenant, and why did Jesus have to fulfill it in the New Covenant? Now, this, <laughs> this could be a sermon about the whole Bible. And so as I've been trying to prepare, I'm trying to... I, I'm going to preach a sermon about the whole Bible, but I'm going to do it in a way, hopefully, that we don't just feel like we're drinking from a fire hose. So let me say it like this. There is a single question that is pulsing under the scriptures from the book of Genesis through to Revelation, and it is what gives the scriptures their forward motion and energy and direction. It is one question that is pulsing under every book and in the heart of every author that is causing God's revelation to take shape and to be completed. The question that makes the Bible go is this. How can a sinful people dwell with a holy God? That is the question of the Bible. When Adam and Eve rebel against God, they are cast out of Eden and an angel is put in front of the tree of life and it says, you shall not come back. You cannot eat of the tree of life. And the question that is burning for Adam and Eve and their children and their grandchildren is they live east of Eden. And I believe that that angel stayed there in front of the tree of life until the flood came. So for generations, I think Adam had to explain to children and grandchildren that said, why are we not allowed in there? Why is God's presence preserved on the other side of the flaming sword of the angel? Why can we not eat of the tree of life? And he had to explain, we are riddled with sin and we don't have access to the presence of God anymore. 
I think Adam had to explain it over and over and over with grief and sadness that sin had ruptured the way that the world was supposed to work. The question of the Bible is, how can a sinful people ever meet with a holy God again? And when God sends a deliverer in Moses to set his people free, that they might come and start to meet with God out in the wilderness, Moses asks, God, who are you? What is your character that upholds the universe? And this is the way God answers in Exodus 34. As we start to understand the fabric of the universe that upholds everything, this is what God says about himself. The Lord passed before him and he proclaimed. He sang his own name and this is what he says. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression, transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So when, when God is pressed on, like, tell us who you are, he says, I'm really merciful, and I'm really just, and I'm going to deal with your sin. Where your sin persists, at some point, judgment is going to come down. I'm really merciful, I'm slow to anger, but I do have anger for sin in the way it's breaking the world, which leaves the people of God set free by his presence in the wilderness in this really difficult, intense place. I'm so glad, God, you're merciful and you're slow to anger. When is judgment coming? And into that place, God created the priesthood to navigate. He said there's going to be a really elaborate set of, of sacrifices that are offered by qualified priests that come before my presence and they're going to kill these animals and spread their blood and in that moment, the rightful wrath that I have for sin, I'm going to put, I'm, I'm going to allow that sacrifice to pay the price. I'm going to look and say, I'm going to have my wrath absorbed by the sacrifice you've made in faith and I'll continue to show you my abounding and steadfast love. God is inviting people into his character. And he's saying the way the fabric of the universe is gonna be upheld is through priests and sacrifices. This is the way God has established it. But into that place, there is this recognition that we still need something. We need someone even more. You know, there's this interesting moment uh, post-Harvey now, if you lived in Houston during Hurricane Harvey, you remember that it was, it was a wild time. We had just planted the church. The whole city was, was underwater. I had a new baby. My wife and I, uh, when we heard that the storm might be coming, we, in retrospect, very wisely hit the road and went to my parents' house in East Texas. And, um, and so I was on the phone. I sat in McDonald's all day long and... Uh, I would sit there with a cup of coffee and I was on the phone trying to help arrange pastors from outside the city that were providing care. And we got to a, a group of pastors that were arranged at NRG Stadium that were praying for people that had lost everything. And I was calling them and asking them how it went. And one of my friends who's like a, you know, good, typical Protestant, Jesus-preaching pastor, so he wears plaid shirts and jeans, you know? Uh, he's like, well, I went over there in my plaid shirt and my jeans because that's like my pastoral get up and I was walking around offering to pray for people and they'd look at me like, who are you? And why, why are you asking? He said, but there were some 
Anglicans and some Catholics there that had the collar on. It's like, those dudes were busy. (laughs) It's like, because in a moment where everything got stripped away, he said, people would look at me and be like, yeah, I'm okay. And then he said, but someone came by looking official and they go, excuse me, excuse me, will you please pray for my family? Will you please pray for people that are still stranded in their home? Will you please? And he said, there was this recognition that deep down in the human soul, in the same way that God established this sacrificial system to navigate, that there's something, there's a recognition that we still need someone to stand between us. And I think this idea, it it comes through even in in Job chapter nine, which may be the oldest book written. We're not sure the context for the writing of Job, but it's arguably the oldest poetry that we have. Um, in the scriptures, and this is the way Job captures the state of humanity. He says, if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit and my own clothes will abhor me, for he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There's no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. You see, I say it like this. The question of the Bible is the question that pulses at the heart of all of humanity. How am I going to be connected to God truly? The priests created a category in the Old Testament that allowed the people to kind of find this tenuous balance with the character of God, knowing that, yes, you're slow to anger, but yes, you are gonna pour out judgment. And into this place, humanity has kind of lived in this spot of going, ah, we feel the tension, but we know we need something. And into that space, This author of Hebrews, who is standing on the other side of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, starts to take the question of the Bible and the whole of biblical theology and say, can I tell you, can I deliver to you something that will finally give your soul the rest that all of humanity and all culture through all time has been feeling? And he says, let me tell you what a qualified representative looks like and what they would be able to do. What would a a qualified representative look like and what could they do in this space where you feel the tension? There's several ways that we could attack this in Hebrews chapter five, but I think there's at least two notes made about what a qualified representative looks like. A priest that can go between you and God that can bridge the gap, that can be an arbiter that says my hand is on you and my hand is on the glory of the king simultaneously. And the first marker of a priest that's able to do that sort of work is that he is gentle. That the sort of priest that can do this work is gentle. I wanna show this to you in the text. Look at verse two with me. This is where the author of Hebrews is expressing how the high priest in the old covenant worked. And he said this, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. 
One of the reasons that the priesthood was able to begin to bridge the gap that the people felt is because they they showed up with gentleness, recognizing that for the ignorant and the wayward, they said, well, I too am beset with weakness. I get it. One of the challenges, one of the places where I feel my weakness as a parent most frequently is how quickly I can be exasperated. I do a lot of parenting out of the like, (laughs) it's it's not something I'm proud of, but in my exhaustion, in my, in my being brought to the end of myself, I'm frequently there. And I've realized that sometimes it feels reasonable where there's just direct disobedience. You know, where it's like, you know what you're supposed to be doing. You know I've said it a hundred times and you're just not doing it. And it's kind of that like, ah, come on. In my in my even uglier moments, I will parent out of, in that place, even not when they're knowingly doing the wrong thing, but they, they don't know. Like where there's just confusion or a mistake. I spilled the thing, I wasn't paying attention, I caused this pain. And I will, in my moments of weakness, where it's not just that my child is doing something they know is wrong, it's where they've just accidentally stepped into something. And in my weakness and my brokenness and my lack of gentleness, I will go, oh, come on, get it together. I love that what this text is saying is that the high priest in both situations, he says, is it an issue of ignorance? Do you just not know what you're supposed to be doing? The high priest says, I get it. I'm beset with weakness. But then even in the higher, he says, ignorance and in wayward moments, moments of rebellion, Moments where you did know and you just didn't care. You didn't care what God had to say. You chose your own way. He says the high priest, even in those moments, is able to look the people in the eye and say, I get it. I wear weakness like a cloak. I too am a broken person like you. When I have to go offer sacrifices, I offer one first for myself, then for you. I get it, we're broken. This is one of the markers of someone that can start to bridge the gap between God and man. But it, it causes an uncomfortable question to bubble up in my heart, and I think if we're reading closely, it might do the same for you. Because the structure of this passage is saying, okay, here's how the high priest used to work, and then let me show you how Jesus fulfills it. But if the reason that the high priest was able to be gentle with people was because he too was a broken sinner who could say, I get it. What if Jesus steps into this role? Isn't he gonna be the sort that goes, come on, you should know better. Is he going to respond like I do with my children? Uh, (laughs) I don't know if you watched the, the, um, the last dance. It's it's an interesting uh, docu-series if you're interested about Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest basketball player of all time, the the Bulls' final run for their championship. And um, it was an interesting note watching this docu-series and seeing why Michael Jordan had the most phenomenal career as a player, but never became a coach. Whereas someone like Steve Kerr, was kind of like a role player. He wasn't the greatest player on the court. He knew his position and he played it well. 
but he became a really spectacular coach. And I think one of the reasons is that when you're Michael Jordan, what, what you hear in this docuseries is that all of the people that played with him were a little bit terrified to be on the court with him because he was so exacting and demanding, both in practice and in games, because it came so easily to him. He was so good. He always wanted the ball in his hands. He could always make the tough shot. And when the other players didn't know what to do or couldn't deliver in the same way, he would come over and be like, come on, get it together. And everybody was so nervous that Jordan was gonna come down on them. As a result, I don't, I don't think he had what it took to become a coach. But Kerr was just kind of like average height, average athleticism, and he just kind of got the job done. And as a result, he became one of the greatest coaches. I wonder sometimes when I'm sitting with a text like this, isn't Jesus going to be like a Michael Jordan coach? He never misses the shot. He always sticks the landing. He is perfect in every way. If he's my priest, isn't he just going to be exasperated? And this is where I need you to hear with fresh ears the beautiful brilliance of verse 7. I want you to hear that Jesus has gone to great lengths to be beset with weakness so that he can be the qualified sort of priest that looks at you with gentleness in his eyes. Hear verse 7 with me. It says this. In the days of his flesh, just even that introduction, what it's saying is Jesus wrapped himself in weakness. He was beset with flesh. He put it around him. It says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. You see, the priest in the old covenant was offering up sacrifices for sins. It's the same word, offered up, offered up. But when Jesus steps in, he's not offering up lambs that have been slain. He's offering up his tears. And the, the picture here is of the Garden of Gethsemane where he's praying and he's weeping and he's grieving and he's coming undone. This is a very earthy picture of Jesus as priest. There is snot and tears and sweat and blood in this picture. Jesus is crying out gutturally, God, hear me. Hear me on behalf of these people. And what he is saying is, is this, Jesus went to such great lengths to take all of your loneliness and desperation that comes from your ignorance and your waywardness. Like all of the sin, I want you to go there for a moment. Think about the ignorant decisions that you've made and the rebellious decisions that you've made. Like the thing that you stumbled into and you're like, I didn't realize. I didn't realize that I was making such foolish and bad decisions. Or that thing that you've done a hundred times and you know God says, don't go there, don't do that, and you do it again. In those moments, that sinking, spiraling feeling of like, here I am in the mess all over again. That feeling. It feels really isolating. We feel lonely and discouraged. We feel forgotten. We feel like I'm the only one that is so foolish and so weak. Jesus took all of that experience 
and he willingly took it into his bones, the isolation, the sadness, the pain, and he grieved it before God in such a way that when you are caught in it, even though he himself never missed the shot, never, never missed it, he so identifies that he looks at you with perfect patience and gentleness, and he says, I felt it. I've tasted it. Listen, friend, in your moment of greatest embarrassment and grief and sadness, Jesus is the qualified high priest that looks you in the eyes and the only thing that is expressed is gentleness and tenderness. He says, I get it. I get it. I have grieved it to the bottom. I have felt it in my bones. I have experienced the Father turn his face away. I have been mysteriously separated from the presence of my eternal Father as I absorbed it all. And so what I have to offer you is gentleness and compassion. You see, a high priest has to be gentle. And Jesus went to great lengths to say, I will, I will step into that. I will be gentle on your behalf. But not just that. If all we have is a gentle high priest that says, I feel it with you, we're left in the space of going, great, I'm glad I'm not alone, but what are we gonna do about it? And Jesus isn't just gentle, but the text tells us that he's obedient. He's obedient, and I want you to see what this accomplishes in verses eight and nine with me. Look with me at the obedience of the great high priest. It says, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. You see, Jesus wasn't just gentle and understanding. He is that, but he conquered. He is the champion of all history who accomplished all that is required for righteousness' sake. Isn't it an interesting phrase that he learned obedience by what he suffered? Did you hear that? It doesn't mean Jesus was disobedient and he became obedient. It's that he was obedient and his obedience was displayed and completed through suffering, which incidentally the same is true for you and me, friend. Suffering is God's classroom by which he grows us up into the people we've been called to be and Jesus never hit eject on the classroom. He stayed to the end. He completed the test. He was revealed as perfect. He learned obedience through suffering. And in so doing, he conquered. He is Job 9, the arbiter that has his hand in our weakness, his hand on the glory of God. He stands between us and he says, I truly can bridge the gap. And for that reason, he becomes the source of eternal salvation. He's answering the question, how can a sinful people dwell with a holy God? He says, there's only one way, and it's me. The tension of the Bible is revealed in one place where all of the promises of God are yes and amen, and that place is in the person of Jesus Christ. The tension of the Bible that has been driving it all the way through is resolved in his body, in his wounds, in his death. He's saying, I resolved the tension. And it brings us to this final place that I just want to make sure that we see together. It says that this eternal salvation is available to, in verse 9, it says, to all who obey him. 
What an interesting phrase. To all who obey him. Does this mean that this salvation accomplished by the perfect high priest, gentle and obedient, is it only available to those who earn it? To those who obey him? I just want you to feel the weight of this, that what Jesus has accomplished is unlocked by a genuine trust that will be marked by real obedience. There's no such thing as faith in Jesus that doesn't give birth to a genuinely transformed life. And so what he's saying is, I've secured all of the riches of heaven and it's for those that are with me that will obey me. There is a, a really um, kind of well-known trainer within InterVarsity for 40 years. Her name was Betty Boyd. She did trainings for student leaders and she was well known all across the country in inner varsity circles, this campus ministry. And she used to do a training about the lordship of Jesus, what he's accomplished and what it means to invite him in. And the way Betty Boyd used to do her training is she'd say, I want you to envision that you invite me into your life. Come to my home, come be a part, come walk with me. And you said, Betty, I want, I want you to come and Betty is invited, but Boyd has to stay out. And she said, well, <laughs> that's a non-category. I am Betty Boyd. It is my whole identity. It's not like part of my identity can come and make home with you while part of me checks itself at the door. She said, you see, if you invite me in, you invite all of me. You invite the whole of my character. She says, the invitation in, in inviting Jesus in to be our high priest, gentle and obedient, meeting you with perfect tenderness in your ignorance and your waywardness. While being the champion of history who has secured eternal salvation for those who are with him, he comes to you and he says, do you want rest for your soul? Do you want me to come in? And to that the invitation is not, yes, Jesus, come and be my salvation. But as far as being Lord and King, that can stay outside the door. It says, no, no, no. What he has secured is available to all those who obey him. Those who bend a knee and say, it's not my agenda anymore. You and only you resolve the tension of humanity and you have full control of my life. You see, we're going to continue to explore in the coming chapters the role that Jesus has as priest for us and in us. But at the outset, what we must recognize is this. No one else can bridge the gap between God and man. No one. You desperately need someone to bridge that gap. It is a human condition that everyone knows we are in need. And the only way that we can step into all the riches that he has secured for us is as he gently comes and says, come to me. He says, as you come to me and as I come into you, it will mean that the whole of your life is submitted to me. So, to my non-Christian friends in the room, you're invited. You're invited by the most gentle and tender person in the whole of human history as he looks at you and he says, I get it. I will be patient with you. There is safety and there is time with me. But listen, I want all of you. 
I want all of you. I've purchased you by my own blood. As you come to me, I will make you my own as you submit to me. You can find rest for your weary soul in him. To my Christian brothers and sisters in the room, don't hold back. The reason that we forfeit the rest that has been purchased for us is because we continue to try to invite Jesus into a non-category, saying, I'll take pieces of you, but not all of you. In his gentleness and in his power, we invite him in and we submit wholeheartedly. Would you submit to the priest king of Melchizedekian order? (laughs) Would you invite him in as we continue to explore and understand what it means that under his rule, we will find the rest that he has purchased for us? Let me pray for us.